Can we just pray as we open God's Word? Or today, by your Spirit, give us a renewed vision of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. At the beginning of his letter, Paul, uh, you remind back in the first chapter, lists the various regions throughout what we know as Turkey where the letter would be distributed. We think by Silas, he mentions him in in, uh, chapter 5. So we assume that Silas would go around and in various places the letter would probably be copied and sent out to more remote uh, towns and villages. And we can imagine these uh, small and of course relatively new groups of Christians, followers of Jesus, receiving this letter with eager anticipation and listening intently as it's read to them. Many uh, were illiterate, many were slaves. He refers to them back in chapter 2. And, you know, let's just remember what it was like for, those, for the life of a slave. They, had, they were ill-treated, they were often beaten. The history records tells us of, that they were often sexually abused by their owner. They had no uh, represent, they couldn't represent themselves in court. When they were owned, they could be bought and sold just at the whim of their owner. And they had no legal right to get married. It was a grim, and they were exploited in every way. So to such people, Peter writes in the verses just read to us, when you're going through a fiery ordeal, you should rejoice. If you're insulted, you should be blessed. You are blessed. And as as you suffer as a Christian, you should praise God when you bear his name. What do we make of that? When I read this passage, uh, I thought, I think I'll try and do a swap with someone else. <laughs> when, when you're going through a fiery ordeal, you should rejoice. I actually found this quite unsettling, and those of you who lead and preach will know that the journey that you go on as you prepare and you're given a passage like this. And I did find it really unsettling. What do I make of this? How how do I relate to this? This should be someone from Iran or the Middle East that's speaking from experience. Then I thought of the the circumstances in which some of these slaves were in. And I thought, Peter, is this real? You know, can we really, what what do we make of this? What did his readers make of it? And what do we make of it in Guildford in 2017? But then as I reread the letter a few times, it doesn't doesn't take very long, what increasingly struck me was the breathtaking scale and scope of the gospel that they had received. Even in their slavery, what they had been delivered from and the tremendous hope that was theirs, having received the gospel. 
So let's then remind ourselves of some of the statements that we've heard in the letter as we've journeyed uh, through it in the last few weeks. Earlier on, Peter speaks of a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and an inheritance that can never perish or fade. He goes on to say, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. That's an interesting phrase to, to write to people, many of whom were slaves, when the word redemption, of course, as you know, was the means by which they could, their freedom could be purchased. Peter says to these Christians, these young Christians, many of whom are slaves, you have already been redeemed through the precious blood of Christ. So my unease, my discomfort on first reading the passage, how I should respond to persecution, to insult, to suffering, let me question, why was my attention drawn, first of all, to the cost of following Jesus rather than the blessings of following Jesus? Why did that stand out first? You know, there is a real danger, in, particularly in modern Western culture, of reducing the power of the gospel that to accept Jesus is little more in various contexts than an alternative lifestyle, a new type of spirituality, or perhaps even in some contexts, a hobby of the intellect. And one of the kingdom of heaven is like passage. You know those uh, parables in Matthew where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like there are quite a number of them, aren't there? This is one of them, a very brief one. He said, the kingdom of, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, everything, and bought it. Sold everything for the pearl. Now, pearls were to the Romans what diamonds are to us. They were the highest, the, the, the most valued uh, stone, not a gem, but it's just, they were held in the highest value. And a pearl merchant knew a great deal about the quality and value of a pearl when he, when he came across one. And when he... So, so the, the, the merchant knows how to value the pearl. He examines it, he looks at it, he, he rolls it between his fingers, and he, comes to, he decides on its value. And he, this, this merchant decided when this pearl was of such worth that it was equal in value to everything that he had. And of course, by implication, when he owned the pearl, 
he owned nothing else but the pearl. Jesus said to find the kingdom, which of course is to find Jesus, is to find something of that much value. And so I reread the letter about this living hope, about the redemption, the inexpressible joy of knowing Jesus as an inner reality. And I imagine the pearl merchant carefully examining the pearl. And you can see the expression on his face slowly changing as the value of it really begins to sink in. And he reaches the conclusion that this stone is worth everything that he has. And when I reread the passage through a different lens, of course, it makes perfect sense. What I needed to do was to revalue the pearl, to revalue what it means to be in Christ. And Paul put it this way. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I consider everything a loss. So Peter reminds them time and time again of the hope that they have in Christ and invites them to respond to that hope in faith and obedience. Those are the three themes of his entire letter, hope, faith, and obedience. And all three of those themes come together in the final verse of our reading, verse 19. And most people regard, seem to regard that as a summary verse of the entire letter. So we'll turn our attention just to that single verse in these few minutes. The verse reads, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves or entrust themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So let's try to unpack this summary verse just a little. Those who suffer according to God's will. Now there's no, probably no greater challenge to our faith, to our Christian life than suffering, whether it be because of our faith or on the normal course and difficulties of life. To be told that it is willed, it is allowed, it is sanctioned by the God of lo who loves us is at first thought quite unsettling and disturbing. So let's pause for a moment and just consider what that might mean. And I'm only passing a brief comment on what is an incredibly uh, challenging subject of suffering. We're encouraged in the Word of God, and of course here at St. Saviour's, to pray for those who are suffering, pray for the sick. Jesus did it, the apostles did it, and we do it. And we rejoice and celebrate when we hear testimonies of people who have been healed miraculously. It happens, and we praise God for it. However, 
In many cases, when we pray and we continue to pray for those who are going through difficult times, we do not see a dramatic and sudden change of circumstances. So has God failed? Are, are my prayers not good enough? Is He too busy? Is He distracted, disinterested, or worse, incapable? What do we make of it? And we come back to that dilemma, if God loves me, therefore, why doesn't He solve this problem? If He truly loves me, is He therefore incapable of dealing with this problem that I'm bringing to Him? Or if He's all-powerful, how could He possibly leave me in this state if He loves me? So whichever direction we come at it, we arrive at a dilemma that we can't quite resolve. It seems to me at this point we enter a realm of holy mystery, which is implicit in this phrase, those who suffer according to God's will. I spoke of the themes in this passage, in this entire letter of hope, of faith, and of obedience. And the Christian hope is that the God who loves me more than I can ever imagine allows us to pass through difficulties and suffering for reasons that I may never, ever under, fully understand. But let's not forget that because of Jesus' death, because of His suffering, His death, and His resurrection, He has ultimately defeated death and suffering. And therefore, I know that there is a limit. There are boundaries to both the intensity and the duration of what I may be called upon to go through. That, that's not intended or, or meant to be a simplistic solution or answer to a very, very difficult question. We've only got to read the… David believed that entirely, but we've only got to read the Psalms to know the struggles that he went through to reach that point. But the hope that we have is that through Christ's own suffering, what we go through is according to His will and will have limits, it will have boundaries on both its intensity and its duration. In such circumstances, may God give us the hope to reach the point that I know that whatever my circumstances, I am not alone and that I am in the will of the Father, my loving Heavenly Father, and to find a place of peace.
Those who suffer according to God's will should commit or entrust themselves to their faithful Creator. The Bible often speaks of trusting God, but actually on this occasion it uses a different word, an unusual one, which speaks about handing over for safekeeping. So remember Jesus' last words on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit, the same word. This God that we have come together to worship this morning can be trusted. He can be trusted in the midst of suffering, but he can also be trusted with my career, my health, the loved ones that I may be caring for, my possessions, all that I am and have can be entrusted to him. My whole self, my whole being, I can hand over for safekeeping. That's a place of peace. What about those listening to this letter who were suffering injustice and persecution? What does it mean to entrust yourself to God in those circumstances? Earlier in this letter, and you can imagine just, you know, the letter being read to you, it would be just a few minutes before in what we would call, and we call chapter two. This is what Peter says. Speaking of Jesus on the cross, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what comes next? Is it that he just said, oh, I forgive you. That's just, it doesn't matter. He did, but he, he said, Father, forgive them to the Roman soldiers who were acting and just doing their duty. That was very specifically to them. So Peter says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted, the same word, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's why we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Sin matters. Injustice matters. But God's judgment is a reality. Now, if you were a young sexually abused slave girl receiving this in first century Galatia, or a Christian family in 2016 in Aleppo 
who has lost loved ones who were slaughtered. Then I think you would sing with David, Psalm 98. Let the sea resound and everything in it and the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing for joy. Let them sing before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. The judge is coming. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is something to celebrate. God is going to put things right. He is coming to judge. This is not a doctrine of the church that is just on the periphery. You take it or leave it. This is fundamental. But it doesn't sit comfortably in the world and the culture in which we live. God is coming as judge. When we entrust all that we are and have to God, the verse says we're entrusting ourselves to our faithful creator. God is asking us to entrust ourselves to him because he made us. He knows what is best for us. And in fact, we find our true humanity in his image when we've entrusted ourselves fully to him and we find peace. So let's move on. Those who suffer according to God's will should entrust themselves to their faithful creator by doing good. That's how it's expressed. When you think about it, it's perfectly logical, isn't it? When two people entrust themselves to each other in marriage, the verbal expressions of love and commitment will be meaningless unless they are demonstrated by acts of kindness and love. What Francis Schaeffer used to call in his books, observable love. It will be meaningless unless it's observable. If I entrust my money to God, I will want to use that money for his glory. If I trust my time to God, I will want to use the time that he's given me for his glory. So it makes perfect sense that we entrust ourselves to God by doing what is good. So those who suffer according to God's will should entrust themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We respond to the hope, the hope being that whatever is happening in this world, in our world, is in God's will. He is in control. And we respond to that hope in faith and obedience. Faith and obedience don't always come easily to us. But then a shrewd pearl merchant doesn't give up all that he has easily either. 
the shrewd pearl merchant only sells all of his possessions if he is absolutely convinced that the pearl in his hand is worth everything he has. When the Spirit of God gives us a fresh insight into what is ours in Christ, and we grasp that in a fresh and real way, then we say like Paul, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Shall we just pause there and, and pray for a moment? Let's just continue uh, and imagine that scene that I've been describing earlier, the merchant Seeing this pearl for the first time, I can imagine him holding it up, rolling it gently between his fingers and feels the slightly coarse texture of a genuine pearl. Looks at the colors, the symmetry, the size, and his entire countenance changing as he realizes the value of what is in his hand. And with that image in our mind, let's invite the Spirit of God to likewise open our eyes to the extraordinary beauty, the cosmic scale and scope of the reality of knowing Jesus, of being in Christ. We have a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. We have an inheritance that can never perish or fade. We have been redeemed. Our freedom has been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. Freedom from the consequence of our sin and freed to be the people God intended. You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Father God, when we consider the treasure that is ours in Christ, our only reasonable response is to entrust to you our whole lives, those we love, and to use the life that you have given us to bring your light and love into our homes, our communities, and our workplaces. And for those among us 
going through difficult times, fill them with your love and peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.